This symposium was recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, as part of the Unfinished Conversation Symposium series, alongside ACCA's exhibition, Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism. This series is supported by a symposium partner, the Schiller Foundation, lead partner, the Trawala Foundation, program partner, the University of Melbourne, government partner, the Office for Prevention and Women's Equality, and symposium media partner, Art Guide Australia. I'd like to acknowledge the Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners and ongoing carers and protectors of country here. I acknowledge elders and in particular Nawi Kaling Briggs of the Boomerang and to the ancestors and any elders here. I acknowledge and thank any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and peoples here with us. So welcome everyone to tonight's panel, Don't Tell Me To Smile, Black Feminism and Intersectionality. The title of this talk refers to the idea that there are still some unfinished business in relation to race and gender. Furthermore, black feminism is not said to conform to pre-existing and established structures, but seeks to create a voice on its own. So not co-opted to smile, so to speak. Black feminism and intersectionality are two big concepts that are increasingly discussed and debated not only in the arts but also in relation to wider concerns in society. On one hand, feminist movements have been criticised for their whiteness. Gender doesn't trump race, as Paola expressed um, in relation to this exhibition. Feminism's claim or universalism, universalism sorry, and some intersectional feminist perspective are criticised for making black feminist concerns invisible. While concepts of equality and care, for example, have been practised by black feminists for a long time. It, also, it has also been criticised as just being another form of racism and othering. To give an example here, uh, in a talk last year at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre, Celeste Little and Rumi Hamad talked about the TV series The Handsmaid's Tale with its intersectional cast, including women of colour, while in the book, women of colour were not worthy of living in society and were sent to the colonies. So therefore, creating another act of erasure. And on her, on her blog, Rentings of an Aboriginal Feminist, Celeste unpacks further her concerns with intersectionality while acknowledging intersectionality's potential when it is carefully and um, structurally analysed. So as such, intersectionality can be seen as a, as a method which connects systems of oppression, domination and discrimination across multiple issues such as, such as gender and its traditional binaries, race, class and others, and how these notions exist in relation to one another and how that can create awareness and also advance equality. So with this exhibition as a backdrop, speakers will discuss the ideas and concerns in relation to black feminism and intersectionality, speaking from their personal positions uh, and experiences. So tonight I'd like to introduce Paola Bala, Wamba Wamba and Gunjimara artist, curator and academic at the Victoria University and co-curator of this exhibition and finished business. We have Madi Clark and Nika Lehman, who are co-editors co of UN Magazine. Madi Clark is a Uganda freelance writer, 
Curator and educator Nika Lehman is a poet, art writer, and she belongs to the Trawalwe peoples of Northeast Tasmania. We have Kate Just, um, artist, and whose work explores feminist representation of the body um, through a range of media, and her work, uh, Furious, is just here uh, behind you. Um, and she's also a lecturer at the, at the Victorian College of the Arts, the VCA. We also welcome Nina Like, gender studies scholar, author, and among many other uh, essays and books, uh, a book called Feminist Studies, a guide to inter intersectional theory, methodology, and writing, published in 2010, and a professor at Linköping University in Sweden. So now I'd like to hand over um, to Paula and you guys um, for the discussion. Thank you, Annabelle, thank you. Uh, I would like to acknowledge that we are on uh, Bunwarang country and um, that this is unceded country, it was stolen country and um, I feel very honoured to, to be on it, I'd be, I'm honoured to work on it, to be able to um, make a contribution to, to our art and culture in, in this city and country through um, and on Bunwarang country, and especially thank um, Awe Carolyn Briggs, uh, who I call auntie personally, um, who's been a great um, advisor and supporter and a great um, advisor to ACCA and the work that we've done here. And um, I would like to acknowledge ancestors and elders um, and any elders that are here, any um, brother boys and sister girls that are here, and. Um, Thank you for coming and thank all our siblings of colour that are here as well, our non-binary and trans mob and um, all our queer mob, please know that you're welcome and you're valued. Um, and I'm very proud to say my daughter and niece are sitting opposite me, which makes me very happy and proud to raise, um, you know, young women up who are so proud and phenomenal in their strength and their knowledge and their voice. And that's Miss Rosie right here. And Miss Jeddah right here, I'm embarrassing. <laughs> Put your hand up, Rosie. <laughs> Please. That's Jeddah. <laughs> um, and I've got one of my beautiful students, Miss Carla, who's an artist as well here. If I'm missing any family, yell out to me. Who else is here? So thank you so much. Um, and I'm really, yeah, I'm really looking forward to tonight. I wore my T-shirt. I wore my No Way of Feminism T-shirt which is by uh, the Radical Indigenous Survivance and Empowerment Mob in, um, on Lenape, Hoking Country, which is also known as Manhattan, also known as New York City. And um, it came from over there on a recent tip, trip that I made in January. And we'll talk a little bit about that, but the notion of feminism not having any waves. And it's something that Anne Marsh brought up. Um, when we did the forerunner to Unfinished. And it was really interesting because a lot of people were sort of wondering what she was on about. But it was really, really interesting to see um, a white feminist from um, that generation who was part of the grassroots movement, a part of the beginning of feminism, talk about feminism being academicised and theorised out of the hands of people working on the ground and in community with Aboriginal women and, and with diverse, as in non-white women, all this terminology is awful. I hate diverse, I hate Indigenous, 
It's all English, it's all boring, it's all very immature, okay? So for convenience sake, we will say Aboriginal, Indigenous, Torres Strait Islander, but we're talking about First Peoples. And for myself, I'm a Wemba Wemba Ngunditjmara woman. That is my standpoint, that is my worldview, and that's my worldview as a, as a black um, matriarchal woman as well. And as people might know, in... Um, in Unfinished Business, in my essay, I said that I don't identify as a feminist and some people got upset about it and some people cheered and Robert Nelson wrote something about it in his review of Unfinished, um, which is all very interesting. Um, but it was a way of positioning myself and my place in this conversation about what it means and the notion that of no way feminism that Indigenous feminisms and that black women's feminisms have been around for time. It's been here in this country and in this land for time. So when things get articulated, when they get theorised, they start to move away from the people that actually created them. And it's something we were chatting about earlier. So I'm really excited to have uh, Kate and Maddie and Nika and Nina here. So if you haven't noticed, Kate um, is our token white artist for the panel and Nina is, is our token white feminist um, academic. That's a joke, but it's, it's also real. It's also real because when, when I said, you know, to, to Max and Annabelle, I'm like, oh, we've got to have, you know, a black feminist panel as part of Unfinished um, because, I, you know, I was so proud of the work of incredible black artists in this show like Ali Baker's racist um, stack of text just behind you and um, Natalie Harkin's beautiful um, work here, this video work, um, and plus others. And I was so... Oh, and um, Hannah Bronte's... Um, incredible work just behind you as well. I was very excited and I said, you know, we've got to have this panel, um, but we also need to have a conversation about intersectionality and when we talk amongst ourselves, we know what the issues are and Amy Maguire wrote about it beautifully and the article came out today and I'll refer to that. She talked about her, her issues with white feminism and we've been talking about this in our little pre-warm-up talk, um, but it was important that we also have this conversation and hold each other to account and also challenge each other when we're working in these spaces together. And Kate is one of the artists in this show. And I really love that work, Furious, because it really, I really relate to it. I have a lot of anger, a lot of anger as a Wemba Wemba Ngunditjmara woman, and it's totally justified anger. Women of colour, black women, Aboriginal women, Torres Strait Islander women, we got a lot of anger and it's all justified. And so I really related to that work, Kate. Um, and as a woman, you know, Anger is, is a, um, a common experience that we all have. Um, so, yeah, so I jest, but I'm serious. Um, and it's important to do that as well and to sort of drill into these things and what, a, um, what intersectionally might really mean. And one of the things that Amy Maguire spoke about today was the roots of racism within... Sorry, and I'm quoting from the fabulous Amy Maguire, who's an Aboriginal... Um, uh, journalist and writer and so I can provide this link we can do this somehow can't we yeah okay just make that happen um, so it's titled mainstream feminism still blind to its racism and Amy wrote the roots of racism within mainstream feminism are still there under the soil but that's not to say there haven't been changes in the mainstream feminist movement Rather than outright denial on racism and how race impacts gender, an even more damaging phenomenon has taken hold, co-option. Intersectionality, and which we must 
recognise and respect Kimberly Crenshaw and her, her work in defining that term and bringing that term to light is now used by many white feminists but has been watered down to a buzzword, a superficial display of inclusiveness, in inverted commas, whereby it is used to deflect rather than interrogate the way race impacts the lived experience of gender, class, gender identity, sexual orientation and disability. An example of this is the way that Aboriginal women are consigned to a footnote with no context in articles about domestic violence, aligning the staggering statistics with the continuing colonial portrayal of the Aboriginal other as inherently violent. So this is one of the... Um, points, one of the provocations that I put to our group. And the other one is um, the memory and the recognition of the great late Lisa Belair, who was a, a black queer feminist, academic, poet, um, performer, um, broadcaster and a brilliant artist, a photographic artist who um, documented over 30,000 images of the Victorian Aboriginal community. And Lisa was friends with everyone from people in the street to labour politicians and everybody in between and she had a way with her generosity of inviting people in to have the conversation and she said everyone deserves a chance but a lot of people mistook her kindness for a weakness and when she was pushed her politics were strong and they were steely and she would push back but she pushed back through her art and her poetry and she also pushed back please come in hi this seat's here this seat's here she pushed back through her um you know, her theory as well and her lived experience. And so I'd like to acknowledge Lisa's contribution and ongoing legacy. We all lost her about 11 years ago now and it's a travesty that she died so young. Um, but I just want to acknowledge because I, I can sort of feel her around today. Second conversation, third conversation I've had about Lisa Belair's work today. So if you're not familiar with her poetry, please please have a look. Um, a very important body of her work is called Dreaming in Urban Areas. It's a collection of her poetry. Um, would you pick up your microphone, please, over there, Nika? Otherwise, people can't hear you. Thank um, you. I was going to ask, what was that particular <laughs> poem that you were talking about earlier as well? So, the poem that's in that collection is called Artist Unknown. And it's a beautiful work. And Nina, um, you were familiar with Lisa's work and with that poem. Yeah. Have you got a microphone there, Nina? For it. <laughs> okay, and this is yours, Kate. Okay, here we go. Okay, okay, and we'll just... Well, you and I can share. Oh, no, you okay, guys yeah. good? Keep going. No? Okay, good. Yeah, I'm right. familiar. Good. <laughs> I'm familiar uh -oh. with Lisa Belliard's work. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Artist Unknown is a beautiful poem where Lisa took a trip into the Art Gallery of New South Wales in Sydney and she was going to see her sister girl's work, of um, Destiny Deacon's work. And what she encountered were all of these colonial... Um, artworks and, and Aboriginal peoples and Aboriginal work represented but not named. So the provenance wasn't there with the work, the place name, the name of the people, the name of the country, the, the person's name, you know, their identity. So this act of erasure was so apparent in this art institution. Um, and in the work, Lisa details each artwork and she prefaces each with artist unknown. Artist unknown. And the more it's repeated, the more traumatising it becomes, the more grief-stricken I become when I read it because it reminds you of, of the erasure of us as first peoples of this country through, um, through a lot of propaganda that, you know, art practices, you know. So 
I think in the context of this space and the work and, and um, making sure that black women's work is represented in this show and speaking back and speaking black, as Bell Hooks does. Um, yeah. So, Maddie or Nika, would you like to pick up on Lisa's poem as well? Or any of that? Anything about um, what you were mentioning earlier regarding the institution or institutions? I don't know, maybe it's a bit early to start trash-talking institutions straight nah, off the bat. Nah, it's never too early. <laughs> it's never too early for me to trash-talk white institutions. It's, it's a hobby. Sure. No. Um, well, maybe first, like, before responding to you, I would just introduce myself um, and pay my respects with acknowledgements to the Bunrang people um, whose lands we're meeting on today. Um, also want to extend acknowledgement to all elders that are present as well as other um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Indigenous people in the room and it's really nice to see some familiar faces. Um, thanks for coming, you guys. Um, so I'm not really sure. I think maybe we were invited, Maddie and I were invited um, together as the co-editors of Unmagazine um, for 2018. So. Um, this year, we're um, producing two issues, um, um, and it was only available for um, Indigenous editors, um, and we co-applied and got the job. Um, so, hmm. before I start talking about that, I think maybe, do you want to introduce yourself as well? Yeah. Hi. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to, again, Awe, Carolyn Briggs and the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nations um, and say thank you to all my friends who came as well. Um, so I'm Maddie Clark and I am a writer, I'm co-editor of <coughs> Un Magazine, um, Combamary person from southeast Queensland in Gold Coast um, and I've been in Melbourne for about 10 years actually. Um, so Nika and I both teach at the University of Melbourne. We both teach a subject called Aboriginal Women and Coloniality within the Indigenous Studies Department um, in the Faculty of Arts. So it's a second year subject. We talk a lot about um, the construction of Aboriginal women on the frontier um, in anthropology and colonial history. And we also talk about um, speaking back um, to those representations through arts, um, social change activism, um, writing and film and TV. Um, I use Lisa Belair in my teaching um, in a literature class that I teach um, as an example of black feminist poetry, but also poetry that speaks to, um, to Melbourne, to place, and also to Melbourne Uni. She speaks, she speaks a lot in her poetry about Melbourne Uni, and she's someone that I would like to remind my students was here before us, um, <clears throat> and whose, whose work contributed to what we experience on campus now and the supportive environments that we can find ourselves in on campus. Um, she was doing the work behind the scenes for a lot of us um, decades ago. Um, but also because when we look at her work, we see uh, a particular dialogue about the feminist movement, the white feminist movement, which has so much relevance to us today. Um, when she talks about the centrality of white people to feminism, white concerns to feminism, um, white middle-class concerns to feminism, and, um, you know, what about my career and what about this and that? And it's stuff that black women have been talking about in all different places for a really, really long time and stuff that we still experience now in the women's movement. So when we look at her poetry, we can see so much relevance for us today. Um, and to my students who are young Aboriginal people, I tell them, you know, this is really important stuff. So also what, I, what I've loved about her work too is that in her arts practice, 
the, um, the protocol of whatever image you create of a person, you have to give it back to them. Um, it's given back to them. There's a protocol in her photography work that she talks about in an essay, um, which was published um, in the catalogue of her, uh, of the, um, the exhibition um, Close to You, which was done by uh, it was Kim, was Kim Kruger, uh, Virginia Fraser, Destiny Deacon, is that right? Yes, so, um, and it's, it, she sort of told, tells us, whenever I document um, an Aboriginal person or any person, like I give the photograph back to them. And it's something, like a simple gesture that I think everyone in the arts can learn from, um, is that if you're, if you're amusing somebody to produce a piece of work that you're gonna profit from, you share that with them. And it's something which I think is deeply informed by um, like a real, a real ethics, a real strong ethics that I think everyone in academia can learn from and everyone in writing can learn from and as an editor, you can learn from it as well. I think that, like what you're touching on to the notion of um, about reciprocity, and how important that is to us, and um, that's something that um, Professor Linda Tui Smith uh, writes about um, respect, responsibility, and reciprocity, and how you engage with Indigenous people, um, particularly because of the way we've been mined with research. Um, and I think that's why it's important to talk about institutions and interrogate that, because we realised before that we're all at universities as well, that we're all either academics or researchers or teaching. Um, so I think that's really interesting that we keep interrogating what we're up against within those institutions, yeah. Nina, would you like to touch on... Because I, I really loved what you were saying earlier about co-option and intersectionality and your, your critique on that. Your take on that? Uh, well, then I also want to introduce myself very, very, very briefly because it is the first time I, I speak. Uh, so I'm, I'm Nina Licke and uh, uh, Professor Emerita, so I'm actually retired. Um, but um, in, in, in Sweden, um, and uh, I'm very thankful for the invitation to, uh, to come here. And uh, I'm also want really to pay my respect to those who were here before. And uh, as a white person, I would also f express my deep sadness and embarrassment that people of my skin color actually were the ones who sort of came and colonized this, uh, this space. Um, so, so that was that was an introduction. But, but uh, I, I also wanted to to uh, to um, well say something about my own work because I have I have for a long time worked uh, with the notion of intersectionality, and I am one of the one of the persons who actually have been criticised for uh, the cooptation uh, and for sort of doing it in uh, well in what was considered by my critics, uh, among others, Siema uh, Bilke of the University of Toronto, um, was considered as uh, a neoliberal, neoliberal way of, of, of uh, doing intersectionality. And uh, for me, I think it's very important that it actually sort of, I think intersectionality is a very useful tool also for self-criticism and for reflection. Uh, so I, have sort of an intervention on that. I don't know if you want me to come with that now or you want to continue the discussion. I don't know. What do you reckon, Maddie? Maddie says. You, you, you want it? <laughs> okay. 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 
Um, because, I mean, I also want to actually pay respect to Kimberly Crenshaw and, and to, the, uh, to, to the way she actually phrased intersectionality uh, originally in the beginning of the 1990s, talking about um, the ways in which she disidentified with white feminism, but the ways in which she also disidentified with anti-racist politics, uh, because the, the intersections the um, violence against women of color, there were no space for talking about that, neither in the white feminist community nor in the anti-racist community, black anti-racist community. So, so I wanted to pay respect to that as well, and I think it's very important, and I think it's very important that intersectionality is, is um, a concept that, that actually uh, pro provokes disidentifications and therefore also provokes um, uh, ways to discuss disidentifications and actually look into staying with the trouble, look into power, privilege, etc. For me, it has uh, sort of sparked me onto a trajectory of actually rethinking my takes uh, on intersectionality, uh, which actually <laughs> brought me to to make. I mean, I'm so old, so I'm coming out of the out of the. Uh, feminist movement in the 1970s and and I was part of the uh, back then the socialist feminist marxist feminist uh, branch of, of feminism and it actually the intersectionality provocations actually sparked me to 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 think very thoroughly about why the hell did we and we meaning white socialist feminists uh, of the 1970s who in many ways were very critical vis-a-vis -vis bourgeois i.e. middle-class feminism, who were taking part in, uh, I mean, uh, anti-imperialist uh, fight against, I mean, the war in Vietnam, the uh, the occupation of, of Israel in, in Palestine, apart, apartheid in South Africa, all these issues were really on the agenda, both for us as socialist feminists and on the left more generally. And why the hell did we did we sort of totally, totally? And here I'd say talk only about uh, not only about the socialist feminists, but also about the European left more generally. How the hell did we miss so much out on race? How how did we actually contribute to the erasure of race uh, and racism uh, and white, and reflections on whiteness and all that stuff? So so it's sort of intersectionality and, and the critique of me for being uh, neoliberal, which I didn't like to be <laughs> considered like that. Uh, can I, actually can I ask a question, Nina? Yes. So why, did you, why do you think that you initially got interested in intersectionality? Is it because of realizing it, this kind of gap? It, it's, it's because I, I have always thought about um, uh, feminism as not um, a a gender, an exclusive gender issue. The issue of gender and class were totally in the center of what, what I and others did, socialist feminists did in, in the 1970s. So therefore, when intersectionality came in, I say, well, yes, that's, that's it, of course. Mm -hmm. but, but, but the missing out of race and racism is, is really, really important. And, and that sort of sparked me to rethink the history and... Uh, and, uh, and um, that also sort of implies, um, I mean, and I really think that, that the point here to reflect on both for socialist feminists and for, for white leftists is the whiteness and Eurocentrism of Marxism. And I think that, 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 that what the socialist feminist 
could do was to uh, sort of see how Marxism uh, put the um, the uh, heteromasculine uh, worker in the in in the center of the class struggle, but. And that was, of course, a critique vis-a-vis -vis the left, but missed out on 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 the, on, on the race part. And I do think that that uh, that that this whiteness and Eurocentrism of Marxism, the, the the way class struggle has been perceived as coming from the heteromasculine worker of in advanced so-called advanced industries in so-called advanced uh, countries, namely uh, basically the UK, what, 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 what Marx looked at, um, has had detrimental effects uh, on the whole leftist movement, at, at least in Europe, and perhaps more broadly. I, I think it's, and I really, really think that, that it's important to rethink um, white privileges um, more generally, uh, but I also think it's, it's really important for the whole leftist movement to rethink this uh, whiteness and Eurocentrism of Marxism, and I want to pay my respect to, uh, to the India, Indian uh, um, subaltern studies scholars, and, and especially Deepresh Chakrabarti, who, who wrote about uh, the, Euro, the, the very nice book called Provincializing Europe, and I like this Provincializing Europe very much. So that was the short version. Sorry for being a bit long with the short version, but it, I, I'm an old woman, so I have a long history. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Nina. It's, uh, I mean, it's always... Um, it's so fraught for us because we're grappling with these issues all the time. We're grappling with um, the writing, the legacy, the, um, the embedded, you know, whiteness and privilege and power of, of you know, previous uh, white feminists and academics and, and men. And um, so it's actually, you know, it's, I think it's always a little bit fraught and I think it's, um, I think it's very interesting to, you know, to be in conversation with you about it where you're talking about the, the blind spots and the, the whiteness and this, you know, this privileged bus just riding over the, you know, black, brown and indigenous bodies to get to a point and just, you know, how the hell did we get here? You know, it was... Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's alarming, you know, but it's also, I think it's really constructive to have the conversation and I know Maddie that you were really interested in interrogating this Marxist position and also the grapples that we have as Indigenous people with people who purport to be our allies from the left and also the fights that we have at particular at um, the, the rallies that are put together by the deadly war movement you know and, and that call is put there on Facebook every time socialists leave your agenda at home please this is not about you today you know, it's not about you today. This is what you need to start understanding. This is not your platform. It's not your space. It's time to listen. And, and that's one of the greatest challenges that we have is about how you actually deeply listen to people and act on it. Like it's an active listening, Lena, and what you're talking about. It's like rethinking, um, critically reflecting, changing, you know. Um, Kate, you were having a good yarn before about how bloody white the VCA is. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this is being recorded now. Yeah, it's yeah. being recorded. But you know, I'm I'm a, I'm an alumni, so I can say mm -hmm. what I want about it. I did my postgrad dip and my masters in community cultural development at the VCA, 
um, with the, you know, amazing support of the, the Willen Centre, which is the Indigenous Academic and um, Cultural Support Unit there. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's fairly white. It's like most of the, you know, sort of breeds the Melbourne arts scene, which you might sort of kind of benefit from. So how do you, <laughs> how do you want to talk to that? Okay, um, I firstly would also <laughs> like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather tonight, the Boonwurrung people, um, and all elders past, present, um, and future, and other indigenous and Torres Strait Islander people here tonight. Um, I, I do just want to um, bring up something I brought up about my furious sign. Yeah. Um, in the last artist talk I gave here about a week ago, um, and just mentioned that uh, that, that came from a project I did um, in the community in St. Kilda, um, which was a project about violence against women and involved um, 13 women, uh, many of whom had experienced violence in their own lives. Um, and it was a banner project which was um, featured on the front of the St. Kilda Town Hall, images of women um, looking pretty tough like warriors all in black. Um, and it was inspired by the... Um, the Furies in Greek mythology, the angry, vengeant women who drag um, perpetrators of violence into the underworld and punish them for forever, for eternity. Um, so, but I like this word furious, and, um, and what, I, what I reflected on actually when I was giving the talk was that 50 people had emailed me and said, oh, I went to ACCA, but I couldn't see your work. Um, because it was, and then they had to ask invigilators where it was. Um, and, and I was thinking, well, that's what happens a lot to, to people's anger about, uh, that's actually what strategically happens to um, people's anger um, about whatever issues they face is that it's often really like displaced and kind of sidelined in a way. So I, I then sort of thank the curators for highlighting um, <laughs> something about it's totally deliberate. Yeah, it was a deliberate <laughs> move, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> we do talk about that, though. We talked about the notion of anger and how important it is to, mm. to um, women's discourse, yeah. you know, and that, you know, you have to look for it. You know, yeah. it, it gets, it, it almost sort of, people act like our anger just goes into the ether after we're repeatedly traumatised through mm. violence that somehow we're just going to get over it mm. because time has passed, you're meant to. So I, that's what I really liked, mm. the notion of that and, and that it's, you know, it's um, floating away up there, there. ever present. Yeah. But in terms of the whiteness of the VCA, um, I, I've worked there for then. 15 on. years and um, I studied there as well. Um, and I think, actually, when I was asked to be on the panel, I, I've got a few sort of strategies, I guess, in terms of intersectionality, and one of them is about trying to make space for people whose voices aren't often heard. So actually, when I was asked to be on the panel, I actually considered so, sort of stepping out and saying there's probably other people who maybe don't get heard as much as I do who would be better um, placed to speak. Um, but then I thought, well, and, and I've done that in many contexts, and I've also, in contexts where I'm invited to say, like be in a show or speak, I'll often sort of ask who the other artists are and put names forward um, as a way of um, reminding uh, institutions and panels who is left out um, and asking them to be responsible for that. Um, but then I thought, well, I guess I can speak to what I guess I have done or what I 
try to do, I guess, as a white feminist, acknowledging that the places that I am in a position of privilege and the place that I'm in um, is perpetrating that privilege. Um, so I think it's my responsibility as an academic at the VCA and someone who actually has the position of being able to hire people um, over the next, say, like five to 10 years to do everything I can do to actually uh, mentor and invite people in, not just as teachers, like in a short-term way, but potentially in a mentoring people into leadership roles so they can um, basically shake down the institution and change what it looks like and um, whose voices get to be heard there. Yeah, and I think that's really critical because it's it's what is required, you know, because one of the things we speak about a lot is what are you willing to give up, you know, as a white person and, and a person in a position of power and privilege, like what are you actually willing to give up? Because it's very easy to talk about intersectionality and it's easy to talk about decolonising, but what does that actually look like, you know, when you do the work and what what is it going to require? Because it does require... Um, Sacrifice. Yeah, I'm like, step into the side. Yeah, yeah. Either step aside, step yeah. back, get out, yeah. um, and do what you're talking about, which are practices that need to be done from the inside. It's a dismantling, you know, from the inside that has to happen. Um, Maddie, did you... You raised earlier about getting invited to events like this one <laughs> and others, um, where you were invited to be a, an intersectional kind of fill-in and you wanted to drill into that a little bit. Well, I would never say no if I was invited by you to a panel, but... No. Not at all. Uh, Same. I think, yeah, but if... Um, yeah, so what I, what I was saying to the group earlier was that I think that for me, in practice, the word intersectionality has taken on the sort of status of words like diversity or multiculturalism before it, where it is a stand-in or a euphemism for black or for other. So um, a lot of invitations that I might get to speak at, um, like as a writer or, as, you know, or as a speaker or anything like that, it, or you know, as a curator as well, is this, this institution, this magazine or this gallery would like an intersectional issue or with like an intersectional show or with like an intersectional article or something that speaks to the intersectional and so basically what I'm like so is I'm, what I think is you know you want me to talk about Aboriginal stuff you want me to speak on behalf of well, the queer Aboriginal stuff so um, it's a convenient way for them to say well you can talk about race and I think it's that uh, that idea that you know race belongs to us as the raced people um, as the as the non-white people we're the ones who are shouldered with talking about this and so yeah, I think that's what I kind of was talking about there. So often I'll sort of, you know, I'll either refuse it depending on who is, is asking me or I'll say, like, what do you actually want me to talk about? And can I talk about something that I'm actually interested in talking about rather than just talking about race continuously? Do you want to say? Oh, you put it back. Yeah. Um, mm, yeah, I agree. So I'm just trying to think about... Um, uh, there's a couple of things that I, want, I could talk about, but maybe trying to um, link to what... Maddie um, is saying, I'm thinking about like the work that we've been doing recently as editors and um, in a way it's really scary because you feel like you're being this kind of like mouthpiece um, to readership um, but at the same time it's awesome because you're just literally throwing people's voices forward. Um, one of the things that's come up for us um, was the amount 
of collaborative pieces, um, by which I mean um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous uh, Australians um, contributing a paper together. Um, Can I also say, yeah. it's not just Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, but it's also like institutionally allied mm -hmm. people and the non-institutional people. So it's like an yep. ac one academic who will be white yep. or and then like an Indigenous person who's not like in not part of like the academic institution. Mm -hmm. So there's that double, that, like that mm -hmm. other dynamic on top of that, which is mm -hmm. that they're the researcher mm -hmm. and that this person is is the is the, the kind of almost the, the subject of mm -hmm. the study mm -hmm. as well, right? Mm, that's the, yeah, that's right. And also maybe something that's worth acknowledging as well. Um, just like we all realised before that we all work at universities as well. So we like are kind of like operating within a certain power structure and there's definitely certain privileges that come with that. Um, so yeah, something that we share in common and also, um, I don't know, do we classify ourselves within an intersection there? I don't know. Um, but what actually, the case that I was thinking about, which Maddie is talking about, I think we're talking about the same piece, was this um, example where we were really interested in this Aboriginal woman's story, um, and there was uh, the person that was working with this Aboriginal person, a non-Indigenous man, uh, and a non-Indigenous researcher as well. Um, and we were kind of saying, all right, well, we've got to cut it down a little bit because we've only got so many words, and this is really great, but actually we're just really interested in what the first person is saying. They sum it all up. Um, but then the other two kind of kept pushing back and saying, oh, yeah, but, you know, it's true that it's all our story. It's collaborative. Um, so maybe we should keep this bit and say, okay, well, maybe we can change the language a bit, just cut it down a little bit more. No, 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 no. And, like, having to have that kind of final word, and I'm just thinking about bringing it back to, like, um, when what you're willing to give up. For us, like, I don't know whether they could see whether that was actually quite a, like, simple thing that they could have just backed off. Yeah. Um, and the focus of that particular piece would be on the woman who's it should be on, um, not needing to have this kind of final word. Um, As in the black writer being edited yeah. by the white. Yeah, and almost being translated or, um, and then they Finishing were, with an academic translating it. Yeah. yeah, and then them kind of almost being the vector through which she gets to be published, right? So um, there's, you know, there's white allies in all of these places who are, you know, they're responsible for bringing us into the institution or for bringing the Aboriginal people into the institution. Mm. Um, they're the person who is almost like the, the thing that enables you to be part of that. But if they if they are ever challenged to renounce any kind of lack of their um, benefit mm. that they might be getting out of that, they really push back on you mm. because they need to be needed, mm. you know, and they get something out of that as mm. well. And that's almost like invisible in that they're not a benefactor, you know, they're not an innocent benefactor who's just there to help, you know. Um, mm. They need you to, to validate the fact that they are there to to assist you and that they're, that's their role because mm. that's their job and that's their career and that's their identity as mm. well, right? Yeah. And I think these people that, you know, not, not just speaking about this example, but broadly would very mm. much consider themselves anti-racist and would stand mm. up in meetings, in classrooms, in board meetings and everything and say, I'm a, you, you've said something racist and I can't, you know, I can't tolerate this. Mm. But at the same time, they are never willing to actually give up the ultimate, you know, the ultimate power in the situation. So. Mm. Absolutely. And um, often when you push back and you say no, you have to prepare yourself with a big bucket and a box of tissues because um, white women in particular in the universities, in my experience, will cry. <laughs> That's what the bucket's for. It's for the tears. You need to save them because we've shed enough tears 
you know, we have a lot of very good reason to cry and to scream and be furious. And so um, it, it often becomes this, um, it shifts you into another space of disempowerment where it becomes about that person's feelings, you know, and we're focused on big picture. We're, we're focused on the battle. We're focused on the fight, which is a legacy fight. It's one that we've inherited and one that we're responsible for propelling forward, you know. So it's never about us, you know. It's... Your, your ego is checked all the time, and it should be because it's a healthy thing. It's healthy to be told off, and that's what we're pushing for in a, in a listening, you know, Kate. And you'll experience this in your pushing back on the VCA about their employment strategies and how you start shifting and shaping, you know, a non-white dominated, um, you know, space or a college, a university, which is a space of creativity, you know, and when you think about the role of creativity in this country, what does it do? It gives us our ideas about who we are as Australians, in inverted commas, you know, and how art has been used as a vehicle to create lies and myths about us. Um, and I know, uh, Nika, before you were talking about um, when you're lecturing or when we get invited to do guest lectures, it's always as in the Aboriginal week of the semester that a, a white lecturer might include. And it's like, thanks, like we're feeling your invitation and it's really good and, and thank you for thinking of us. But, you know, this should be throughout all 12 weeks of what you're doing. And, um, when, and, and then you're put in a position like you spoke about where you have to make a decision about do you say yes or no? And do you explain your no? You know, and who do, do you, you explain to your, yes. as well? You know, like, yeah. is this something that you just uh, respond directly to the person that invited you to speak in their class, or should you be seeing in the manager of the program and the school and the faculty? You know, you know, there's so many layers of responsibility, and this is not just universities, but you know, any kind of institution that you're operating within, which is plenty. Um, yeah, how do you how do you best cut across that yeah. bureaucratic crap? I remember when it was in like a probably 2011, I reckon I was about 20 years old, I saw you at a panel and it was um, at a conference called Feminist Futures. Oh, do you remember oh, this? I do. Were you there? Yeah, I was there. <laughs> that was in North Melbourne. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was the, it was the day of the first slut walk in yes, Melbourne. Yes, and it was the largest feminist gathering in Australia at that time or something like that. It was like massive. That. Yeah. Yeah. So you spoke at the panel, there was a very first panel and it was called First Nations Women and Feminism or something something like that. And there was like all First Nations women there. And I think you gave it to them and you said to them, you've put all these, all of these, all of the First Nations women are the only ones who have their race named in this, in our bios. Nobody else has their race named. And I think you ruined a few people's mornings, but it was really good. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Because there's all these, you know, these moments of like, you know, of absolutely refusing to put up with that, you know, because it was, it was a very like, we're doing, you know, we're doing intersectionality now. We've been challenged and we're moving forward and we're doing intersectionality. So we've got the First Nations Women panel in the first and everyone was just unimpressed. You know, you guys were all unimpressed and that, that was like life-giving, that how unimpressed you could be towards them and how they were just kind of like, oh, we thought we were doing the right thing. Do you know what I mean? They obviously did. They, I think they actually did mean very well. If there's anybody here who's on the organising committee, I'm really sorry. I think you did a really good job. I think you did the best that you could. Anyway, so... <laughs> um, no, seriously. Anyway. Thank you. Thank you. But I think that was like that moment of like refusing to, to put up with that nice... Do you know what I mean? Like, they're being nice, they're being inclusive, they're including you, um, and actually telling them what's what. 
yeah, being, being co-opted is, it, it's, it's, sometimes it sneaks up on you, sometimes it's institutionalised, sometimes it's, you know, structurally built in so that all of the gains that um, black, brown and Indigenous women and queer people, like Stonewall, for example, everything that's done by marginalised peoples eventually gets dragged, you know, from the fringes into the centre and then packaged up as if it's a gift that other people have attained for you and then they expect you to be grateful for it, you know. And so um, going into the, those spaces and... Um, and thank you, I didn't know you were there. That's really lovely. I was 20 years old at the time. Oh, yeah. that's lovely. Um, and... That, that's very um, important to me to hear your feedback that that had an impact because I get to these things like today and I'm riddled with anxiety and my daughter would know and my partner knows, my family know. I get very, very anxious. I think about pulling out. I think about saying, you know, Annabelle and Max, why are there two white people on this black feminisms panel, you know, and, and who are they? Who are these people? And they're like, well, Kate's one of the artists. And I went, oh, is she? That's right. So, but I thought the same thing. I'm like, why are there two white people? on the black feminism panel there must be there's like a million amazing but in terms of like intersectionality i mean like you know i've been thinking about this for like the last week Mm. right but it's like what you know so what would it mean though if we took you away and then we're just talking to ourselves again yeah Yeah, i know which is what we do all the time that's what i think when i go to like the you know like a feminist talk at blindside or whatever and there's like you know 50 women and there's like one guy and the guy is like the boyfriend of the woman who runs the panel and you think like well clearly like this I go oh you're you came and he goes yeah I'm like her boyfriend yes yes (laughs) yes and, and, you know, and it's so incredible to see just how many incredible, beautiful brown and black and other other people here, non-white people. It's so heartening because um, this is what we want to do. We want to keep inter- interrogating spaces and changing them. And it's important, like what you were saying, Nina, you know, to sit here. It's not, not necessarily easy to sit in front of us mob when we're all going, mm-hmm, go on then. You know, justify your your career and your existence. Um, you know, but you are a guest here, and you're owning that work, and that's important because we need to we need to break it open. You know, and we need to change it. Um, but it's not easy to say hard things in front of people. I don't wake up and go, oh my god, today I'm going to insult 50 white people. You know, <laughs> and yay, it's going to be a good day. You know. <laughs> I mean, that's usually the effect, but <laughs> but um, it's it's nothing compared to what my mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother and Jeddah and Rosie, you know, share a great-great-grandmother, um, our papa Mariah Day, and she was an activist before she they were called activists and she was a matriarch and she was fierce, you know, and she set out and she... She left Moonacolor Mission, a tiny little mission in, in what's known now as New South Wales, and made a 1,500-kilometre round trip by herself to be at the very first day of mourning. Now, when we hear about the day of mourning, for example, a lot of movements in our country, we, we hear the men's story, you know, and, and I'm not going to disrespect any of the patriarchs, but their story is promoted because it's easier to heroicise men. It fits the colonial patriarchal narrative in this country, you know that men do everything. Um, but Papa went there and she represented our family and our Wemba Wemba people and she was there. And we only find that story out recently because Jeddah's mum, Annie Cecily, who's an incredible activist, Annie Cecily Atkinson, she told me that story because there's research done by white historians in Deneliquin, which is the town near our mission. You know, so there's, 
there's so many opportunities for decolonizing your own practice, your own research, your own teaching, your, the own, your own way you engage in the world, and you must be an active anti-racist. Every time you let someone get away with it, whether it's your partner, your mother, your brother, your friend, your colleagues, it just keeps germinating. You know, we've got to keep pulling those weeds out. We've got to keep poisoning the, the weeds, you know, yeah. from the inside, yeah. Yeah, and you can sort of see the effect that it has on individuals over their whole lifetime to be constantly facing microaggressions and, yeah. you know, disrespect um, and erasure, especially in institutions. Like, I think we have one coworker who's a, like a senior Aboriginal woman who wrote it in response to a group email and it was a forwarded on request for a speaking role, speaking position that was voluntary and unpaid and it was going to be about race and about racism and I won't be specific, but um, she responded to this whole group email, including the white person who had sent the invitation, I'd rather pull out my eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> and we sort of went, that's the point you get to where you just don't give a fuck anymore and you just have to, you have to do that for your own self-preservation to just be like, I'm not actually going to be grateful and nice to you. I'm not going to spend, I'm not even going to write, dear so-and-so, I'm just going to say this, you know? Like, you don't want to put that effort in anymore. Yeah, because the, the fuckery meter only goes so far. And then it starts going bing, 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 bing. And it malfunctions and smoke comes out of it and you can't deal anymore. Um, Nina, did you? Yeah, well, I, I, I just wanted also to uh, uh, refer to another poem of Lisa Bellea, oh, where, where, where she actually talks about that, that she doesn't want to talk to white women. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I actually like that poem a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's a very, very good provocation. Uh, and and uh, I think it's very important that, that white women and white people more generally uh, actually start thinking, I mean, I, mean, I mean, start reflecting without needing provocations because, I mean, you, yeah. So, so and, and I think that that's what, what this uh, uh, poem of Lisabelle is, is is very much about. So, so I, I like that poem a lot. And, but, but I also think that what I said before, that that I, I mean that I really really think that that um, I mean it's what I found out I mean it's I mean it's so deep I mean racism and whiteness is I mean it's such a deep thing so you really need to really think through a lot of things to to actually and and uh, to to actually sort of find out how privileged you are as a, as a white person uh, and and I'm I'm collaborating with. Um, with a black feminist PhD student, and uh, I mean, I'm constantly sort of finding out, I mean, even though I sort of consider myself as a sort of, uh, that I have reflected a lot, that I'm constantly finding out new things. And, and that, so I really think that, that the burden really is on white people to, to actually think about it and reflect on it and be active about it and, and yeah, work, work, work on it. So I wanted to, to add that to, to what you said. Have you got the name of the other... Oh, you're talking about the Artist Unknown poem Pardon? of Lisa's? Or was it another poem that you were no, I No, I know. I, no, now I was... I mean, I was referring to, to, to this poem of Lisa Bellia oh, yeah. on, 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 on white... That, that, oh, that, yes, that, that yes. she doesn't want to talk to white women. That, that, and, and then I was referring to... About not having the conversation yeah, anymore. Precisely. Yeah, precisely. protecting yourself. Yeah. 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 Um, Speaking of protecting ourselves from conversations, we were going to do a Q&A, <laughs> but sometimes Q&As can be really um, fucked. <laughs> and, um, and sometimes what happens is that we can have a really great conversation and then um, 
someone will either tone police us or they'll tell a really long-winded story about that time that they got upset by a black, brown, Aboriginal, black feminist woman or someone said something that made them upset or they spent six months in an Aboriginal community and that's been their experience <laughs> and they got a skin name and now they can do what they want and now they know what all Aboriginal people are like. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't like those. <laughs> and I saw a little comic today and it's, it's a, <laughs> there's a female facilitator and she's got a little microphone and there's a guest um, and, it, and she's saying, we have time for just one long-winded, self-indulgent question that relates to nothing we've been talking about. <laughs> but I can see you're all pretty deadly and that you won't do that. Um, and if you attempt to do that, uh, any one of us will uh, stop you from speaking um, and um, out of the current joy of my life, which is Black Panther, when... Um... So let's all do it. Let's all do it, because everyone knows what I'm talking about. Someone, if a white person says something stupid, what are we going to say? Oh, come on, louder. Thank you, okay. Um, For the white folks that haven't seen it, this is a little movie called Black Panther... (laughs) <laughs> and um, there's a scene where a white person talks out a turn <laughs> and the beautiful um, uh, king... Sorry. And he's the king, isn't he, of his mob? Yes. And so this... Sorry, I'm terrible. This little white fella tries to speak and he, he gets told, you know, that he needs to stop in this beautiful way um, and that um, if he continues that uh, he will be fed to um, the, the children. Um, but then he laughs and says, don't worry, we're vegetarian, so it's not going to happen. But, um, yeah. So be ready. <laughs> but... <laughs> But what we thought is actually, you know, try to limit how painful Q&As can be. And if you have got a question or a comment or something that, you know, has been brewing um, about what we're talking about, or I'm going to throw it over to Maddie Nika, um, Kate and Nina to actually ask questions maybe of the audience or um, any one of us. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Hello. Hey, everyone. Hello, hello. Um, My question is about... It's kind of about the institution as it stands. I just am not sure how many gatekeepers there are, how the reparations and the turning over phase looks, and, like, what is the actual reality of, like, the radical shift occurring in our lifetime, like, who do we have to fight? Like, I'm literally just like, it is at the end of the tether. I'm not in these spaces, so I don't understand how they work necessarily, but they are very big. They do host a lot of stories that I often am like, that's problematic, that's problematic. And so I just don't understand, like, the timeline that's involved. I don't know who the gatekeepers are. Like, is it literally like an office of people? Where's the funding? And why can't it be as simple as, like, actually just replacing people's jobs, actually just giving money to people and having it completely turned over to an Indigenous government, to, like, black people and queer people and real artists? Like, I'm just like, how long is that going to take? And who has to lose their job? And are people willing to just 
live another life and like move on. I, I wouldn't mind to answer that. Um, I think it depends on the institution and it depends on how many people are in it. But just like practically speaking, where I work and in the art school, maybe there's like 30 permanent staff. And in any given department, like two or three roles come up in any kind of couple of years. And I think the kind of change that would have to happen that's totally feasible is that, like for example, you could commit if you're a person with like five people in your department that you would just like only hire queer people and people of color for like at least five or seven years. And then you would just mentor them into not just light sessional positions, but actually mentor their careers, make sure they have PhDs, whatever, and then by the time you move on, say like I'm a head of a department, I probably won't stay in the same role for five years, that person's actually the head of the department. It's actually not that hard at all. It just requires like even maybe only three or four people in any given institution to, to make that commitment, and then you could have like 20 people in five years. Literally, it's not that hard. Like right where I work right now, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people who should ascend to like leadership positions in a five to 10 year period. And the whole school would change if that would happen. I don't think that the institutions that I work in would ever use the word reparations. They would never use the word decolonization. They really look like they're in pain if you make them say the word racism. <laughs> so their words are reconciliation, cultural competency. Um, their words are diversity, sometimes maybe diversity, sometimes multiculturalism. We celebrate diversity week, I think. Uh, their words are also, um, what's the thing I'm talking about? It's like cultural awareness, training, um, yeah. cultural yeah. inclusion. So we put plaques around the campus to, you know, to sort of help students navigate where is the significant indigenous sites on campus. Um, we would never, ever, ever use the word reparations because that would make us liable, you know? Um, so one thing that has happened in my role last year or year before is that my boss offered me, after a really lengthy um, conversation, which involved quite a lot of weeping about um, not asking us to do extra work for no money to educate our colleagues about what they're doing wrong um, over coffee whenever they ask us. Uh, he offered us extra, he offered me a little bit of extra money um, in my pay, like a point, an extra point one in my, um, in my salary um, for that purpose of consultation as a, he called it curriculum consultant. So that was one way that he attempted to make what we call reparations, but I don't think that that is a solution. Um, to offer more money or to offer more of this number and that number because institutions love numbers. They love f fractions such as... And I've been in, I've been in uh, uh, recruitment and retention um, working groups in the Faculty of Arts um, at who... It's their job to monitor one, one clause in the Reconciliation Action Plan which says the University of Melbourne will have this many Indigenous employees slash students in this particular area and they all should, you know, and we want, we want this number of, of recruits and we want this number of people who will actually complete their degree and we want it to be a little bit more than what we did five years ago. And this working group, they gave us a, a sheet of statistics that were all completely fabricated, 
right? They said, okay, there's, you know, there's 30 people in this particular faculty at this time studying a, a postgraduate degree. And I was like, there is one, I know her name, you know, who is an indigenous person who is doing a, you know, a program. And he was like, you've, and what they'd actually done was they'd taken uh, a group of people who had come for a seminar that lasted for one week and they'd added them into their enrollments numbers as PhD students. And I was like, they're all from different universities. One of them is from this university in this particular school. And they do these things to make it easier, to make life easier for themselves because they make targets this way. And this is how the institution thinks is in terms of this, right? Mm -hmm. It would never, ever, ever say the word reparations. One day we might make them say that word, but it, you know, mm -hmm. I cannot see any future where that mm -hmm. is even, even vaguely possible. Yeah, and I'd also just like to add as well, like um, making, creating the position is also not enough. What I see under things like um, these action plans that would use the R word reconciliation um, is creating a position, but completely poorly advertising it, making it only available to indigenous students, which is great or indigenous people, which is great. But and giving not, it to a white person. <laughs> but, you know, not advertising it literally at all it stays internal. No one applies for it. Well, you know, see, we tried, but no one applied, so now we just had to get rid of that whole position. Well, they say the talent's not there. The talent's exactly. just not there, you're right? Yeah. Um, so it doesn't, it, like, that's where it starts, but by no means that's where it ends. Yeah, and I think some disciplines are moving faster than others. So in some disciplines, you might have really radical conversations, really radical, diverse staff pools, and then in anthropology, they're still using the word native, right? So, you know, we have different, what we used to call them, like, you know, temporary autonomous zone, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, the, um, the action could be happening and it could be really good, but it might be taken away from you at any second. Like, we're constantly in our discipline being under threat of being eroded by the bureaucracy um, and having our space, literally our space, like our offices taken away and filled with white PhD students. Like, yeah. at any moment, they could do this to us and we have no power over that. But what we can create in the space for five minutes one day is, like, a really radical, amazing, transformative experience, but we don't get any reassurance that that could ever continue, right? Yeah. And I think that you can think about this in the art context as well. Like within art institutions and with, within putting on um, exhibitions, I don't know. Maybe you guys disagree. I, I mean, I, I I really really also want to say that that I think it's totally important not to consider institutions as stable uh, and consider them as monolithic. I mean, first of all, I, I think it's I think it's really important to. Uh, I mean, find not only the, the gate keepers, but also the gate openers, because there are actually gate openers in the institution. I think Kate probably gave us an example, and you are, I mean, everyone here is part of an institution and can also, in that sense, um, act as gate openers. So I think that's that's one thing. And the other thing is, I mean, not to consider these institutions as, as stable. And I think the way you destabilize institutions is actually by sort of forging very strong links between activism uh, and critique of the institutions, critique of the epistemologies, critique of of, of, of the theory, I mean the theories, etc., and 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 you can actually do that through activism. And since I'm so old that I am, uh, I was actually part of the '68 movement in uh, in um, in well, uh, where we actually the, the students' movement actually it's in some places, um, I mean very much white students' movement, but still uh, changed the curriculum very 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 strongly due to the fact that there were these strong links between activism 
uh, and what was happening in, 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 in the universities or, and, other, and other institutions. And I do think, I mean, that there are still a lot of examples uh, out there of students' movement, radical students' movement, who, who are actually changing things. It's happening in South Africa, it happened in China in, in 1989, it has been happening in, in Tehran, it's happening in many places, and I really, really think you should use your strength and, uh, I mean, go, go, go for it and, uh, and not give up and use your, I mean, your fury <laughs> and, then, and then actually uh, go for it and not consider these institutions as, as stable. They, they, they are not stable and, well, I think that's, that would really be, be, be important. And when we say reparations as well, like I would strongly suggest that it's about, rep like reparations is about land and wealth. And the university is nowhere near, you know, we might diversify our staff pool, we might diversify our students, but they're never going to, you know, if you actually say to them in any point during any kind of meeting, you know, what about you give some land back, you have heaps of land, nothing. Like, it gets really awkward really fast. I've seen it happen before. So, you know, we're very, very far away from having that conversation, I think, or being able to be heard. You know, we're saying it, but we're not, yeah, we're very far away. Just a couple minutes left, sorry. A burning, burning question. Hey, um, I have a question for the Indigenous people on this panel. So, um, the other day at work, there was a colleague that used the N-word, and I told her not to use it, and she is somebody that, like, otherwise identified as Australian, and then she was like, oh, I can say that. I'm like, I have Indigenous in my blood. And, um... Yeah, it's not the first time that I've heard people that otherwise would have um, called themselves white um, claim the Indigenous side, but also it's not really my position to question, you know, how much, like, you know, somebody's identity. So I just wanted to know, like, how do you go about calling people out that do that shit, pretty much? <laughs> it's a hot topic right now. Yeah. So sorry, I missed the I missed just the very beginning of of what they what term they used. She used the N word, to, to, and then she tried, and then she tried to make an excuse by saying that she's black, so she can say it. <laughs> that it's just that is just completely fucked up any way that you put it and um you know and I also um yeah no no one says that but, you know in any case and I've seen this happen in um some indigenous Australian art practice of people toying with the notion of blackface and um people you know calling themselves by the n-word and in my in my world take on that in my personal take that's completely inappropriate and it's not for us to um do or speak to or some in some way where people think they're subverting something by um using you know um, what they refer to as you know to 
taboo or hidden terms or or the last taboo, the last thing that you're allowed to say because there's a fascination in this country with, um, you know, political correctness and political correctness has gone mad and you're not allowed to say anything anymore, you know, and it's really just a bastion of racists um, lamenting the fact that people are now watching them and that they're pulling them up and so people get angry when they get told that they can't be racist outwardly anymore. And, you know, we have politicians in this country that sanction it. So when you have politicians like George Brander saying people have the right to be bigots in this country, it gives every moron licence to say what they want, like in this case. Um, and this just sounds absolutely disgraceful, that then she's trying to play some sort of, um, you know, fantasy race card that she can say something like that to you about herself and that she's going to hijack Aboriginal identity in order to do it, you know. that's That just has to be called out. Like, that's just completely messed up. And I know that um, all of us have experiences of this where people use that kind of language around us. And um, I know, Rosie, that you had an experience, in a, you know, in your profession as a makeup artist of people using the N-word and people talking about this and then, um, and then confronting her and saying, oh, so you're Aboriginal... But oh, you, you shouldn't be, you know, <laughs> you shouldn't be offended because you don't look it. So these twisted perceptions of what it even means to be an Indigenous person, an Aboriginal person, a Torres Strait Islander person. And it's also um, that as women we cop it the most because, um, one, generally people are afraid to say these things to men and they're generally afraid to say them to Aboriginal men because they think that all of our men are violent, which is another myth and propaganda perpetuated by the, the, the colony and the ongoing colony. And then the other is that somehow we're these passive recipients as Aboriginal women and that meant to women to be continually generous and giving and that because we were broken sexually on the colonial frontier that we'll just accept anything from people, you know, and we, and we won't. And that's the thing that um, often separates us from non-Aboriginal friends or colleagues or classmates when we say no. You know, because we're not meant to say no. You know, that's the colonies made all these lies about us, that we are promiscuous, that we are lazy, that we are unbeautiful, that we're not beautiful, that we're not articulate, that we're unworthy of respect. You know, so that's why it's so important every time that an Aboriginal woman um, speaks her truth, makes an artwork, um, writes something, performs, um, that she is, you know, continuing in this, you know, in, in the legacy that's come before us. And just stamping it out. Don't ever let anyone try to pull some sort of bullshit. Well, I'm Indigenous, I can say these things. No one should say that. Nobody. Yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you. Yeah, good. <laughs> Jenna. Um. Back to what Maddie was saying before about um, how positions for Indigenous people are advertised, but, you know, they're not advertised enough, so a white person usually takes it. What do you do when you, you're working... Like, I've worked in organisations where it's, like, an Aboriginal organisation, but there's white people working with them, those organisations who seem to control the more senior Aboriginal people in those organisations. And when I do speak up about certain things, they don't like it. And, I, you know, I thought, you know, maybe I could speak to the other Aboriginal people in the organisation, but it seems like that doesn't work either because they're under the, like, 
I don't know how to articulate it, that just um, the, the white people in those organisations have so much power over them that you can't really do anything about it. I just, yeah, I didn't really word that properly, but it's, yeah. Um, yeah, I just haven't been sure what to do in the past when you're faced with those situations. Yeah, they make themselves very comfortable. Uh, okay. Yeah, there's there's a lot of like again um, white people in in indigenous studies and white people in um, in all kinds of institutions like who who want again to be needed and want to see themselves as being needed. Um, and there's all kinds of ways that institutions mishandle these things so that you know almost deliberately I would say sometimes to keep certain people out and to keep a certain power dynamic um, really entrenched. Um, but speaking to your specific situation, like, I don't know, you know? Um, do you guys have anything to say? It's like you, you feel comfortable that, oh, there's another person yeah. who's been talking to you about, you know, you understand, but then they don't have to. Yeah. And that's their kind of like, wow, what do I do? Yeah. How do I speak up about this? Like, do I leave? Do I yeah. leave? Yeah. I'm not asking you. No. Yeah. I think I, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, un, it's Unfortunately, Jeddah, and I'm really glad you spoke up about it because unfortunately it's actually very common and so people get co-opted, they get assimilated, they get institutionalised and they start protecting themselves and their own positions and their own power because that's, that's, this, is, you know, this is when the oppressed become the oppressor. And so instead of you know, what they should be doing, which is making pathways for you and all our young people, bringing you through, guiding you, protecting you, nurturing through then making ourselves obsolete and stepping out so you're coming through so it's not the same stale old voices saying that, you know, the things that were relevant from a long time ago, you know. Um, it's a denial of young people's rights as well to do that, you know, and as young Indigenous people, you have different takes on things from us. You're dealing with different challenges and different issues, even though generally it's all, you know, still the colonial project. But, um, you know, we can't project our experiences onto you or um, have empathy when you actually don't know what you're dealing with, you know. And it's a whole different world that you, you, the platforms, the social media platforms, the levels of, of racist and violence that you're encountering that perpetrates all of your lives and, you know, the, the attachments that we have to our phones and devices in order to, you know, to, to live and to contribute, they can get you at any time. You know, and so it's something. It's, it comes down to a question too, I think, about self-care and preservation in that space, and then trying to find a trusted mentor or colleague that you can, you know, go to with it. But it becomes an institutional problem, and all universities, art institutions, galleries, and museums are sites of colonial power. So never forget that. And I think Nina actually made a good point about these institutions not being stable. They're not. They are the. the they're the white you know, they're the white embodiment of white superiority. They are the structures that project, you know, they're phallic, you know. They're there to, to, in, to intimidate us and they're there to dominate us deliberately. The very structures themselves, the very buildings, you know, are done to intimidate us and make us feel small and, and, and unimportant. You know, and then we're in there fighting the fight for our mobs, trying to get ourselves educated and our people educated, and then you get sellouts and people who assimilate for their own needs who will throw you under the bus every time. So you have to focus on the ones who are 
are honest and um, the ones that haven't sold out and the ones that are staying true to, you know, proper community values and um, dignity and respect and reciprocity, all those things. You'll find them. You just got to... It takes time and I'm in my 40s now, it's taken me time to figure out who to avoid and still, sometimes I still get caught up, you know, but you'll, you'll find them and it gets easier as you get older in some ways, yeah, yeah. And, and I would add, I think that, that the myth of stability is part of the oppression, so therefore I really think that you should think a lot about this instability and find, find all the gaps and fissures and instabilities in these institutions and it's a, uh, yeah... Yeah, they're crumbling. You can see it crumbling, you know, around the world. And um, when I, it's, that, oh, it's good to bring them down. I have to finish, though, because we are running out of time. And there was one more question from you. Yeah, sorry, I'm going to give this one to you. Hi, um, my name is Hien. Um, English is not my first language, so pardon me. But... Um, I have a question for the people of color on the panel, so the indigenous people. Um, well, do you ever find that like um, feminine, like your feminism has to take a step back because of more current issues? Like in like with the current political climate, I feel like for people of color, a lot of the violence that we face is more racialized than gendered. And even when they are gendered, it is racialized. Um, so like, um, for example, the dialogue around gender violence, um, like, um, the, yeah, um, like when, um, when white women use their white woman, like womanhood to, um, as a, as a weapon against um, black men, for example, that is an example of, of like gender violence, but you don't hear them talk about it like that. So, do you feel like you know? How do you, like how do you do you feel like sometimes you have to prioritize other things like you know before your feminism? Thank you. That's I'm really 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 glad that you raised that. It's very important. Um, Nico and Maddie, do you want to? Did you want to answer that? Um, I guess I'm just thinking about white, the white possessive logic that Aileen Modern Robinson talks about. Um, and I think that she does a good job of explaining that like, under imperial control, the desire to possess is a very much a white patriarchal quality. Um, so it is like combining those two things together. Um, I don't know, like I don't know whether I'm creating like too much of a, a total picture of patriarchy, um, but I think that those two things are always connected um, in ways that might not be clear, but the desire to control like through possession itself, I would say is very much like, yeah, as Aileen Ronson says, white patriarchal logic. Um, and it certainly explains a lot of stuff in, at least in Australia, settler colonial. Um, that would probably, that's my opinion. I don't know how you guys feel. Are you, are you um, uh, Nick is um, referring to, um, uh, in, in talking up to the white woman or just in her, 
general? Um, it's a book that she published a couple of years ago okay. now. It's a collection of essays of her, oh, her yeah. own, mostly, I think. Yeah. yeah. So Professor Aileen Morton Robinson yeah. is um, um, an Aboriginal academic who wrote a really important book mm. about um, 17 years ago mm. now, yeah, um, which is I'm Talking Up to the White Woman, in which she... Yeah, great. And she articulates a lot mm. of what you're talking about. Mm. And one of the issues that, you know, we encounter in our community and that notion of... Um, uh, white women's violence is something that I've spoken about here before and reminding people that colonial, colonialism and the colonial project is not solely a male project, that white women participated in frontier mm -hmm. violence against us and they, they continue to do mm -hmm. that and that Aboriginal child removal in Victoria alone is in, out of control. There are over 1,700 Victorian Aboriginal children in out-of-home care, predominantly in the care of white women. So there's a continuation of an historical removal of Aboriginal children by white women and, and our children were removed for the purpose of becoming domestic slaves for white people and white households. So the, the, the sheep's back, the, the colonial station, the, the, the country farming, all of these, um, you know, sentimental values that people have about how Australia was created on the sheep's back was actually on the, the back of black children and, and black women. That's how it was created. And we see it continue to permeate. And sometimes it's through uh, white women lusting after our men and wanting black children and going for latte babies. And it happens. It's such a reality. And, and then what we deal with, we deal with um, often women that then separate themselves from and that child from that black family, from their origins, from their family. And they um, are sort of then in this no place you know, and, and they don't know much about who they are. And they're not raised in culture and in family. And they're raised by someone who is angry at the black man that they had the child with, even though they chose him. So it's very difficult, it's very fraught. And, it, and for me, that's sort of like the most um, um, tactile, um, ongoing embodiment of that possession. You know, you talk about possession and these acts of violence. And that sometimes um, a white woman's you know, passive aggression or her crying at us is actually violent because we are busy surviving, not making other people feel better about themselves. It's not our business. If you're encountering guilt or grief or shock or, um, you know, a, a new... You're having a, um, a revelation about the truth that you didn't know that was right beneath your feet the whole time in the country that you've been raised in, you know, in the schools that you went to, the... the the country that you've been living on and all of a sudden you're shocked and, and you feel, you know, you feel this guilt and that somehow you, then you've got to project it onto somebody else, like the next black woman that you encounter because you want to tell her all about your experiences and your feelings. It's very selfish, you know, because we're busy surviving. Um, but, yeah, these, sometimes, like Maddie said earlier, there's microaggressions and they're these daily ones and there's reminders. And just in the past week, I've seen two examples of, you know, really lovely white women at the university, one who bumped into um, my colleague, um, Kim Kruger, and we were talking, and she said, oh, yeah, I just want to let you know, it's really great that now we've got, um, um, we've got a Torres Strait Islander flag up. And she said, that's great, but I'm South Sea Islander. Oh, I thought you were. She said, no. And then it was just this total awkward silence. Nothing else was said. 
And then another instance where another lovely white woman who's worked with us before was really excited to see us out in the courtyard at the university and said to my director, you know, who's a senior woman in our community and at the university, and she says to her, oh, you know, I'm really excited because my, my child is finally doing Indigenous studies at their school. The school's finally, you know, talking about it. And we're like, oh, that's good to hear, great. That's one school out of thousands, you know, but that's good, okay. And she said, yeah, so she's really excited because I told her that I actually know a Wurundjeri person and we live on Wurundjeri land. And my director, KJ, said, but I'm Yorta Yorta. <laughs> and we worked together for 10 years, okay. So sometimes these acts of forgetting make us feel erased. And so to the other person, it might be, oh, I just forgot, or there's so much to know, and there's so much to learn, there's so many language groups, and I can't remember everything. But it's like, we do. We remember everything. We are trained to remember everything. That's why in, like, Ali's artwork and Natalie's artwork, in the other Aboriginal women's artwork here, Hannah, it is about remembering. It's about the act of honour and remembering, and you're not allowed to forget. Our families teach us that, <laughs> you know, don't forget who you are, don't forget who your relations are, don't forget to show respect to so-and-so, don't forget to come home when you've been away too long, don't forget to check yourself. It's constant, you know, but that's a good, that's, that's our grounding, you know, that's our grounding. So I'm sorry, that was a very long-winded answer. Um, and we have to finish because this, this building might crumble if we stay in here. <laughs> Past 8 p.m. when it shuts. Is that right, Annabelle? But is the bar open for a little bit longer? Yes, so please uh, join us in the foyer for a little drink and um, yeah, just talking about amongst ourselves. Thank you. And thank, thank you, you, Nina. Thanks, Nika. Thanks, Maddie. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to an ACA podcast recorded by ACA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit ACCA.Melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.